0: You want the truth this morning? Give them a hand again, if you would. Uh. Hey, I, I, I want you to help me today welcome uh, Candace from Dell City, Oklahoma, Michelle from Inola, Oklahoma, plus we got friends in Arkansas, Arizona, New York, just to name a few. Welcome to Battle Creek Online. Would you welcome them today? Hey, I want to ask you a question today, just kind of just show of hands. How many of you have heard the label in our culture today, influencer? You've heard that uh, label mentioned. How many of your kids want to be uh, influencers? In fact, here's what I want to say to you. Every one of us actually knows an influencer whether it's a social media influencer or a media influencer or just someone in your life who actually does influence uh, you. There's been a rise of influencers in in, uh, culture lately. In fact, five years ago, that wasn't even a term, and I don't even have to define it uh, for you in this room today. There are uh, YouTube influencers and Instagram influencers and TikTok influencers and fashion influencers and health and beauty and and, uh, rap influencers, fishing influencers. Influencers, bird-loving influencers. I mean, it's everywhere in between. And in a world filled with influencers, the reality is this. Every one of us has a measure of influence. Even you, you you might have 50 followers on on Instagram. That's influence. You may be a stay-at-home parent. That's influence. You have influence. And God has given all of us influence. And and hear me today. He has given it to us for us to stand tall in a bow-down culture. That should get an amen. amen. I cannot respond and preach today, okay? And so I need you to come and go with me today. He has given you the influence for you to stand tall in a bow-down culture. Amen. Amen. That's what we're talking about in this whole series. Now, two things before we jump in that I believe today is, number one, God has given every one of us a measure of influence, every one of us. And secondly, he expects us and wants us to use whatever that measure is for him and to leverage it for the kingdom. So as I look throughout the whole of Scripture and and go cover to cover throughout the Scriptures, there's one guy that really actually comes to my mind as an influencer, and he was being an influencer when it was hard to be an influencer. In fact, sometimes it was dangerous, and there were even moments that it was deadly, but he took a stand, and in taking a stand, he stood out. Hear hear me in the culture today. If you want to know, I took my youngest two to lunch yesterday. was talking to them, and they said, Dad, what do you think about the culture? What do you think about what's happening? I said, I'm actually a bit afraid of what's happening in the culture. They said, what is it that frightens you in the culture today? It's not that everything has been politicized. What frightens me in the culture today is the stream of this culture today is causing smart people to be quiet. It's causing smart people uh, to, to not s- disagree with the stream of the current of the culture because they will be demonized if they disagree with the st- stream of the culture. I, I-, I just got to tell you, if you study history, that sounds a lot like Czechoslovakia. That sounds a lot like the Soviet Union. That sounds a lot like the communist bloc. And it ought to frighten you a bit when, when smart people are fearful to express and they, they start checking everything they post on social media. They start checking everything that they're going to write. They start checking everything because they're going to be demonized and, and it has created a culture of fear. But what I got to say to you is that when you stand up with courage, you will take shots, but you will give courage to the people around you. And and in taking a stand, you will stand out. And and Daniel, there's a whole book given by his name, a whole book of the Bible. And not only that, seven other Bible uh, writers, Bible book writers mentioned this guy Daniel because he stood up and he stood out. And so we're going to study Daniel the whole month of November. The whole month of November, and you say, well, that sounds like a long time. We could spend three, four months in the book of Daniel if, if we really took a notion to dive into this thing. So if you got your Bible, jump into Daniel. Uh, and here's the scene as we start chapter one, verse one. It's the summer of 605 B.C. That's a long time ago. But here's what I want you to know. This ancient book has a fresh word, in fact, an eternal word, for for you today. Look at Daniel chapter 1 and and verse 1. I don't know what happened. Somebody smarter than me come do this, please. I don't know how to do it. There's a button on here somewhere. Yeah, Josh is smarter than me. Thank you for fixing it. And please don't allow that to ever happen again. Daniel 1 (laughs) and and, and verse 1. During the third year of the king of Jehoiakim's reign. Listen, Jehoiakim is the king of Judah, okay? This is the people of God. This is God's king. This is God's leader. That's where the context starts, okay? Do you understand? It's not beginning with the world. It's not beginning with Babylon. The context is always God and what he's doing and his people. Now, his people were not walking with him, so the the whole scene shifts almost immediately. You don't even have to get to verse 2 for the whole scene to shift. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, circle that in your Bible. We'll come back and talk about it in a minute came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, what does that mean, besieged it? It's like a forced quarantine, right? That the army of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar marched up to the hill of Jerusalem, surrounded the whole city, and... and and blocked the supplies coming into the city. And, and so no food, no water. So eventually they're going to run out of those things. They will have to come out and they will have to surrender. So what on earth is going on? How, how did the scene shift so quickly from the people of God, the things of God, to, to this is taking place in Jerusalem? What's happening there? Well, you got to back up a minute and get some context. In fact, let me just give you a little of that context of the who, what, when, where, why, all of that, how, uh, as it relates to Daniel. If you look at the whole Old Testament, Okay, the whole Old Testament, it's not a bunch of isolated stories. It's actually one story told in multiple stages, okay? So let me just teach you today as we begin. Uh, Before I preach, I'm going to teach for just a minute, okay? The the first stage uh, of the Old Testament is what we call the the book of Genesis, okay? It's the whole first stage. And it covers all the way from creation through the whole family uh, of Abraham. In Genesis, when we get to the end of Genesis, where do the people of God find themselves? Yeah, in Egypt. They're in Egypt, right? And so we enter stage two, which covers the next four books of the Bible. But but this is really about them coming out of Egypt, them exodusing, them going into what is the Bible refers to as the promised land. Okay, that's stage two. Stage three is really all about the rise of David, how he became the greatest king over all of Israel. And in every stage, by the way, throughout the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, it has the fingerprints of Jesus all over it. All over it, okay in fact, last week I spent several days, pulled myself away from the office, didn't take any calls, no tech, I just started studying for Christmas and I 'm working hard on Christmas, and I got so far on it I wrote this Christmas and Christmas 2021 and the reason is is because when you dive into the Bible and you begin to look for Jesus, you begin to look for Christmas, you begin to look for the promises of God it's in every verse of the Bible it's in every chapter of the Bible and the whole Old Testament has Jesus' fingerprints on it in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to, what happened? <laughs> Jesus is referred to a, a, as the son of David, right? He's the son of David. Why did they refer to him as the son of David? They're showing his bloodline. They're, they're showing the fact that he is the king of kings. They're showing that he is uh, the king in the line of David. By the way, you get to the fourth stage, and, and this is the fall of Israel. And this is bad times for the people of God, right? The kings get progressively worse and worse. They follow after idols and they sin. And God promised, if you do that, I'm going to spit you out of the land. And which brings us into the fifth stage, which you call the exile. Now, why why did I set all that up? Because I want you to understand where Daniel falls in all this. Daniel is here. He's one of the prophets that God rises up while the people are not living in Jerusalem. They're actually in exile in Babylon, right? And and it changes powers over and over and over. But this is what's happening. And Daniel is prophesying. And this is what's going on here. He's a prophet in the exile about 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Now, speaking of years and dates, I've gotten lots of comments and lots of suggestions and lots of material sent to me. I, I announced Daniel and all of a sudden, Y'all came out of the woodwork, right? And and you're like, hey, do you have this? Have you studied this? I want to know about this. I want to know the visions, the fulfillments. And quite honestly, you put a lot of pressure on me the last few years. (laughs) And and, and listen, I love you. But those of you who are into all of that, you are nerds. Bible nerds, but you're, you're the best kind of nerd. And I'm one of you, actually. I'll, I'll just confess that up here. I try to pretend cool, but I'm actually one of you. And, and, but but they're not all nerds. And so what we can't do is dive down in there and swim around in the deep the whole time. What well, we're going to have to come up for air periodically as we walk through this and make it applicable to exactly where you're living uh, today, okay? But I, I found something, and, and I'd seen it once before about 20 years ago, but I found it again this week as I was looking at it, and I want to show it to you because I got really excited about it, and so I'm going to nerd out for just a minute with you, okay? And, and I want you to see this. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 4, just write this down because you're going to email me later, and I'm going to say you should have wrote it down. Ezekiel chapter 4, I'm going to cover it very, very fast, but in Ezekiel chapter 4, there is a prophecy from God of punishment. And he gives a total of time, 430 years. Now, when you look at it, don't get confused because he mentions two numbers, 390 and 40. And when you add those two things together, it's 430 years. Now, what we know from the prophet Jeremiah is this exile lasted 70 years. So when you take that 430 and subtract 70 from it, what do you do with those years that are left? What do you do with those 360 years that are left over? Well, Leviticus chapter 26 uh, you see there that God promises to multiply the punishment remaining by seven. He says, you're, gonna, you, you're not doing it right. I'm going to punish you seven times more. Now, when you take that number, 360, and you multiply it times seven, you get 2,520 years. But that's 360-day years. The, the year in the Bible is 360 days long. But we live in how many days per year? 365. So, if you factor a 365 current year and and, and current calendar into this number of years, you factor in the leap years. You got to do that every so often, right? The Julian calendar versus the Gregorian reformed uh, calendar. And by the way, if you understood everything I just said, you are for sure a nerd. (laughs) But you factor all of that together, and here's what you come out with. 2,483 years, nine months, and 21 days to which you say, wow. Amazing. What am I supposed to do with that? I'm glad you asked. If you take that period of time and you add it to the decree of Cyrus, remember Cyrus is mentioned. It says Daniel stayed faithful all the way to the time of Cyrus. King Cyrus, who came from Persia, made a declaration that the people of God could go home. They could go back to Israel. We know exactly the date that he made that declaration. Now watch what happens. From the decree of Cyrus, 2,438 years, nine months, 21 days, brings you to May 14th, 1948. You say, what is that? That is the day that Israel became a state again. In some of your lifetimes, that's when that happened. What do you mean? The Word of God is completely reliable. By the way, there was another declaration called the decree of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes made a decree that said not only can you be back, but you can actually start rebuilding the temple. Now, when you take that date and you add 2,438 years, nine months and 21 days, you get to June 7th, 1967. That's the end of the Seven Days War in Jerusalem when Jerusalem became the capital of Israel again. So, do the math. It does not lie. It proves the Word of God is the Word of God. And I'm telling you this, and I'm showing you this for one reason, to show you how reliable that book you hold in your hands is, that that you are to develop a ferocious appetite for the Word of God. Because if you understand the context of the Word of God and the reliability of the Word of God that you are reading, it now has a better chance of changing you. And that's the point of the Word of God in our lives, right? And and, and so, look what happens with this cat named Nebuchadnezzar. Watch. Verse 2, the Lord gave him, the Lord gave him, the Lord gave him. Don't miss that. He didn't steal this from God. God gave it to him. Why? But to discipline his people. And to bring his people back to reconciliation and restoration over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him, there it is again, to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. The Lord gave it to him. The Lord permitted this to happen, right? That he had promised them, I'm going to judge you if, you if you follow after idols, and they followed after idols, so he punished them. Not to be mean. You see that when you zoom out and look at the Scripture. It was all to bring them back. That was his whole point. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back, those treasures, to the land of Babylonia and placed those treasures in the treasure house of his God. He took the treasures from the house of God and put them in the treasures of his God. But he took something else with him. Look at what it says. Verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz this chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family. That's significant, by the way. What does that mean? It means Daniel and those other guys are, are royals. They're from the bloodline of the king. And there's an application for you today. You're a royal. If you know Jesus Christ, you are in the bloodline of the king of all kings. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 declares that you have the blood of a priesthood and you have the blood of the kingship, right? And so he took other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Verse 4, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking men. That's the premium of Babylon. It's a standard that's not God's standard. It's a standard that has been put on our culture that comes from a place called Babylon. How young can you look? How pretty, pretty can you be? How smart can you be? And how long can you extend that over your life? And we chase it with dollars and energy and everything else, right? And we, we, we spend our whole first part of our life chasing wealth. And then the last half of our life, we spend all the wealth chasing youth. It's a premium that does not come from God Almighty. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature, underline that, of Babylon. Now, Babylon is an ancient kingdom, okay? It, it, It really existed in history. Do you remember history class? Very few of you said yes, right? And that's because what we do is we take those who only want to coach and don't want to teach. They didn't even vote register to vote, and we give them the civics class, right, to, to, to teach us history, to teach us government. I'm not hounding on you as coaches. I love football. If you're a coach, I love you. Just vote. <laughs> and, 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 and so, when you remember history class, listen, listen, listen. That's okay, because Babylon is the kingdom that comes after Assyria okay? And before Cyrus and the Persians or the Medo-Persian empire, okay? So Babylon is today and what is present day Iraq. But, but the thing in this passage, that, that word Babylon is actually in the Hebrew, the word Chaldean. Now, where have we heard that word Chaldean before? Anybody remember? Abraham. Remember, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So the very father of our faith, the very beginning of this whole lineage, is being called out of Babylon. From Abraham all the way to you and me, your father is calling you out of Babylon. But, but that word is actually a technical form of a word that means sorcerer or magician. In other words, these were the trained magicians who, who helped out the kings, now, you remember the story of King Arthur? Remember, he had Merlin. Now, why do you need? Why does a king need a, ma- a magician? Because the, the kings depended upon the magicians to read the signs and to tell the signs of the time. Remember the wise men came from the east when Jesus was born? Do you follow? The Bible fits together. Now, Nebuchadnezzar would take young men from kingdoms that he conquered, and then he would train them in all kinds of magic arts. And one of the arts of magic that he would teach them was the interpretation of dreams. Jump to chapter 2 real quick. Verse 1 and chapter 2. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, and he demanded that they tell them what he had dreamed, which is brilliant, by the way. He didn't just say, here's my dream, interpret it. He said, tell me what I dreamed and then tell me the interpretation of it. It's like going to see a psychic and they say, now, why are you here? you're like, really? You should know that. <laughs> Years ago in seminary, we, this was before GPS, as Meredith and I were driving around in downtown Dallas, and, and I was intimidated by the big city and, and not knowing where I was going. And I remember seeing on a poster board, on the interstate, in the middle of downtown Dallas, Psychic Convention Next Right." And I remember saying to Meredith, they should know that. <laughs> so, so Nebuchadnezzar is angry. And he says, you can't tell me the dream, so I'm going to chase all of you down. I'm going to kill all of you. He's a bit dramatic. You'll find that all throughout the book. And and, and they start chasing down Daniel and his friends and all the magicians, all the wise people, and and he says, I'm going to kill you. And then Daniel prays to the true God, the one true God. God gives him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and actually he saves the lives of all of the wise people in, in, in that land. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, when you read it, ends up confessing, your God is the one true God. That's being an influencer. And that's what separated Daniel from the crowd. He took a stand. And when you do, mark it, you will stand out. And when you stand for God in the world, you will stand out. But you will also be an influencer. And we need influencers in this world today. We need godly influencers in this world today. And when I say world, listen, I'm, I'm not talking about the people of the world. I'm not talking about for God so loves the world that, that he gave his one and only son. That, that's all I'm talking about being a lover of the world, the, the, the system of, of Babylon. And, and I want to show you real quick what we're up against in the world that we're living in today. Because it's the same thing Daniel was up against. And here's the truth. The devil's playbook hasn't changed. What Daniel was up against, we are up against. And there's a world system that rejects God, and we must reject it. And we must fight the thoughts of this world with the wisdom of God Almighty. And so whatever situation you find yourself in today, I want you to know you can be an influencer right there in that moment. And you may feel like you're in exile. You may feel worn down. You may feel worn out. You may have lost a job. You may have lost a loved one. You may have lost a, a, a relationship. Listen, we're all feeling it right now. And the whole world. But here's the truth you need to be encouraged by today. When it feels like the world's falling apart, God is still in control. And this is the moment that we can be mega influencers. And in order to do that, we need to be wise about what the world is trying to do to us. And so I want to show you three ways today that the world is trying to snuff out all of your God-given influence. Okay, here's number one. The world will try to rename you. When Nebuchadnezzar took over the kingdom, he did something very brilliant and very clever. He would take these young men and he would rename them. He would give them new names. Look look at the next verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from the tribe of Judah. Now, we were going to preach this series back in the spring when COVID hit, and I punted it all the way, not knowing that we would still be in all of this when God decided was the right time for us to do this. But when I started studying this about a year ago for this past spring, I wrote next to this verse in my Bible, what about the rest of them? Why are these four guys listed all by themselves? I, I, maybe they didn't resolve. And their hearts, like Daniel and the others, resolved in their hearts. And do you know what happened to them? They became culturally relevant and spiritually irrelevant. Do you know that's possible? To become so culturally relevant that you are spiritually irrelevant. Look look, look at verse seven. The chief of the staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. That's a mouthful, by the way. And if I mispronounced any of them, you, you won't know. But but why are we reading all of this? Okay, why does this even matter? You know that in the Old Testament, names were a big stinking deal. And they mattered a lot. Your name was your identity. Your name was your destiny. And these guys had great names Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, beloved of the Lord. Mishael, who is as God. Azariah, the Lord is my help. These are great godly names. But what were their names changed to? They were changed to names based on all the Babylonian gods. Nebuchadnezzar tried to take their godly names and flip the script. He tried to put on them uh, God names from the Babylonians. In fact, look at it. Uh, Prince of Baal, illuminated by the sun god, who is like unto the moon god, servant of the shining fire. Do you see what happens? And every time these boys were called by their new names, it was a reminder they were defeated. It it, it was a reminder. Listen, Listen, what names and what lies have been spoken over you? by your family, or by society, or by your own self-talk that don't line up with what God has spoken over you. There is an attempt to reduce your identity to a single descriptor. And the point is this. The world will try to rename you and distract you. Because if you find your identity any other place than Jesus, it won't hold water. We need to lean in on our identity that is found in Christ Jesus alone. That your identity is found in Christ first. You, you are a Christian who happens to be a man or a woman. Of God, but you're a Christian first. You, you are a Christian who happens to be black or Hispanic or white or whatever, right? But you are a Christian first. You cannot let the world define you. The world wants to bring this all down to some sort of gender issue or some sort of choice in the matter or some sort of this, that, and the other. But God is saying, no, 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 your identity is not there. Your identity goes up multiple levels, right? And we can't, we can't get in the trap of defining ourselves either. We don't know enough to define ourselves. We have to lean into what God says about us. And the enemy tries to confuse us by confusing our identity. And he will lay on you a false label. And the identity knows how powerful your identity is in Christ Jesus. You remember the girl named Liz Smart, Elizabeth Smart? You remember that name? She was abducted from her home uh, at like 14 years of age. I think this was back somewhere around the year 2000. And she was kept for a period of time, a long period of time, uh, maybe a couple of years or something like that, in the home of this abductor. But as she retells the whole story, that that abductor would take her, put a wig on her and a hat, and would walk her through the city streets of her hometown, holding her hand. And she tells the story later that there was one moment, three or four months after she'd been abducted, that he was walking her through the streets, and a policeman approached them and said to them, I'm looking for this girl named Liz Smart, and showed them a picture. The abductor said, no, I don't know her. He showed the picture to Liz Smart and said, do you know this girl, Liz Smart, showing it to Liz Smart? And she said, no, I don't know her. She lied about her own identity and she remained a prisoner of that man that she was with. All she had to do in that moment was to say who she was and she would have been set free. You've got to, child of God, declare who you are and whose you are. Your enemy will do anything he can do to stop you. And and his strategy begins with trying to rename you. The, The second thing he will do is he'll rename you, but he also will try to tame you. And he will do what he can to snuff it out. He is afraid of God's power in and on you. And he will snuff it out, he will tamper it down, and he will try to tame you. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar did with Daniel. It's so very interesting, actually. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. Now think about that. He's using their stomachs to entice them, their cravings to, to entice them. You you, got to hear me when you read Daniel, you see this, that friendly captivity may be more dangerous. And we're in it. And we're in Babylon. And the friendly captivity will lull you to sleep. And we'll get you used to the food of Babylon. We'll get you used to the overindulgence of choice after choice after choice. And just paralyze you with all of the choices. Does it feel like we live in Babylon today? You ever feel like when you're trying to figure out what to do in the world, you're looking at the Cheesecake Factory menu? (laughs) I I don't even want to go there. I'm like, forget it. Just, Just bring me some chicken overindulgence of choices, and the enemy is never going to say to you, you got to hear me. He's never going to say to you, come and play with me, and in two weeks, I'll put you in a pit of despair. That's not how he does it. He's smarter than that. He doesn't throw a blank hook in the water. He will set it up all around you where you think it revolves all around you, and it is all about you, and then he will get you, and then he will take you out. It was more than just a diet. This has very little to do with the diet. There's something much bigger attached to it. One of my good friends, maybe one of the smartest people I know, he thinks this is all about we're supposed to be vegan. He's brilliant, but that's stupid. That's not what this is about. He's joking me because he thinks we shouldn't eat animals, and I bring it to community group every week. (laughs) Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. You should circle those words, language and literature, what is written and what is spoken. And the diet the world wants you to take away, is it wants to take you away from what God has written about you. It wants to take you away from what God has spoken over you. And when we are so full feasting on the things of the world and the world's desires, we have no room left for God's desires and what He desires for us. And what does He desire? He desires to speak over you. That's so clear in the Word of God. But we're absolutely overwhelmed in this sea of self-absorption. Take a look at what Daniel uh, did. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself. That word, by the way, in the Hebrew means he resolved, but it's bigger than that. The word picture of that is that he purposed in his heart. Child of God, you are responsible for protecting your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. The Bible is clear you are supposed to protect it. How did he do that? By eating the food and wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, hear me again. People want to make this about, is it meat sacrificed to idols, and that's why it was bad news, or or does God want us to be vegetarians? Hear me. I'm Middle Eastern. I understand the Middle Eastern culture. To share a meal is to commit oneself to friendship. That's what this is about. Meals in the Middle East are covenantial. And we got to stop eating off the world's table, guys. Not defile. He knew that the world's desires would take him away from God's desires, so he shut it down. Listen, the the world will try to rename you, the world will try to tame you, but but finally, the, the world will try to claim you that's because the ruler of this world who stands behind this world wants to put a claim on whose you are. But if you're a child of God, you're already claimed by God. If you're a Christ father, you got a seal on your life. If you're a Christ father, you got a guarantee on your life. Claimed as one of his. And we got to hold on to that claim and live that claim out in our lives. Daniel lived it out in the smallest way we can even imagine in his diet. Daniel and his friends said, we're, we're, not, we're going to eat God's food. We're not going to eat your food. Because Daniel knew what Jesus knew, that we don't live by bread alone. We live our very lives by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. And they're saying, you're getting us to major on your language and on your literature to take us away from what God has written and what God has spoken over us. And and the world has a message for you when it comes to sin. It's no big deal. You're not hurting anybody, live a little. As long as nobody gets injured in this thing or killed in this thing, go ahead and do what you want to do. Listen, Daniel's core conviction is not about diet. It was not a matter of food. This was the difference between hunger and craving. Listen, when I say to my children, what are you hungry for in the car? That conversation never goes well, by the way. And I don't know why when we pull up to a drive-thru, I get nervous. I'm seeking a counselor on it. But I do. When I pull up to the drive-thru, I ask my kids, what do you want? And and, and they say, I have to see the menu. I'm like, what do you mean you have to see the menu? You've been to Chick-fil-A 9,000 times. I got to see the menu. And we pull up, and the girl on the other side of the speaker or the teenager standing there with the iPad now, we're sitting there, and my kids can't make up their mind. And I don't know why it makes me so nervous, but I'm like, we should be more efficient than this. I just want to drive off and say, you're never eating again. It's a frustrating experience. But when we ask you, what are you hungry for? Really what we're saying is, what do you want to eat? And technically, we're speaking about craving. Because cravings actually studied by psychologists are actually all in your head. Cravings are are, are different than hunger. Hunger is what we need, and it's in our gut. Cravings are what we want, and it's in our head. And Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if we will follow uh, 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 only our spiritual cravings, we only come to our Father when we want to. But if we're following this hunger for righteousness, we come to him for our daily bread. And that's what Daniel is doing in this situation. He was setting aside these cravings for a real hunger, the righteousness of God Almighty. And there wasn't anything special or magical about the food that Nebi was offering them. But what Daniel was doing is drawing a line. He was drawing a line. And here's the question I want to ask you Where are you willing to draw the line? What core conviction do you have in your life today? You have have core convictions about what you will watch and what you will listen to and and where you will go and and, uh, what you will pay attention to. Listen, those things have a way of seeping into your soul. It's not a matter of they might, they will. You got to be careful. Listen, and when it comes to what are you putting inside of you, is it putting a claim on you or is it releasing you to your full potential? And Daniel drew a line, and, and the problem is we draw the same line, we just don't stay on this side of it. Daniel drew the line resolved in his heart and said, I will not cross that. He resolved not to defile himself, and he didn't. We resolve, and we do. And we are, and we have, and we allow the hub of our lives that everything else spins around centrifugally to be something other than Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is the only one that can hold that anchor that everything is spinning around? When you put something else on the throne of your life and everything is spinning around it and the centrifugal force comes from that kind of pressure, it moves, it can't hold. And when that center moves, it wreaks damage on everything around you. Because it's not held solid where it belongs. There's only one person that that place is reserved for in the center of your life, and it's Jesus Christ. The, the, do you remember when John was called up into the third heaven in the book of Revelation? He said, I see a throne, and there's someone on it. It's not an empty throne. He is sitting on his throne, the throne of all thrones, and that throne will hold. And when we put him on the throne of our lives and everything else spins around it, it will hold. And when we do what the world does and allow the world to claim us and allow the world to tame us and allow the world to rename us, it steals our identity. By the way, you can put anything in that hub you want to. You can put your political views in that hub. which is exactly what's happening in our nation right now. And everything is spinning around one political view or the other. They will not hold. Only Jesus can hold. And the way to stand up begins by bowing down to the right thing. And the right one. We, we, we sang that song, by the way. I suggested it. I know not every campus did it today, so I'm not meaning to leave you out. You should have done what I suggested, and it would have fit. <laughs> but I suggested the song, There's Another One in the Fire. And, and at 9 o'clock while we were singing that song, even though I suggested the song, I thought there, there's, some of those words could be better. There's another one in the fire standing next to me. Let, let me just tell you theologically what, what, what we should say there. There's another one in the fire, and I'm bowing at his feet. And when I bow at his feet, he stands up in me. He's not your buddy, he's your God. And, and hear me today. When we are redeemed by him, our identity comes from that. And this word about bowing down to the proper one, Jesus, is a Bible word that we don't talk about in our culture very much, but it is the most relevant word for our culture I can think of today. And it is the word repent. Repent means to change your mind. To turn and to change your mind. When we put our weight on anything other than God, it will not hold us. When God says that he's jealous for you and and, and he's jealous for your attention, it's not because he's afraid if you don't choose him, he's going to be left all alone, insufficient and of himself. He knows that when you don't choose him and you put your weight on something that cannot hold you, you will be injured in the process. He, he knows that there will be collateral damage in your life. But when we throw ourselves fully onto him and, and turn to him and change our minds, he will hold. When we put the burden of being a God in our lives on anything other than God, we will be damaged in the process. And look, it's no, it's no secret where we are in our country right now. We are in an election year. In a couple of days, we are in a massive election. And I think there is no excuse for a Christian not to vote. None. But you've got to hear me today. That's not where we put our hope. I've lived long enough to watch both parties be in charge. And neither of them have brought revival. We don't put our hope there. Look, according to the Bible, uh, according to the Word of God, which is the sole authority for our lives, it's not the government that determines if the hand of God is on a nation. It's just not. God's Word says it's my people, my church, my bride who determines that. I I told you I'm not covering charts, although I snuck a few in on you today. I kind of like put it on a spoon and tricked you into taking it. But if you look at the biblical chart, historical chart, And you look at which of the Old Testament historical books covers the history that covers the period of Daniel. It's 2 Chronicles. That's the historical book. 2 Chronicles covers the time from Solomon all the way to King Cyrus. You remember what the Bible said about Daniel? He was faithful until the day of King Cyrus. Cyrus. This is the period. And in 2 Chronicles, there's a verse that may be the most relevant verse for our nation today, found in chapter 7 and verse 14. And if you haven't memorized this one, you you really should. If my people, not those people, not the ones who elected people, not, not, not those people, if my people, my church, my bride, those who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face, and will turn from their wicked ways. God promises, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins and I will restore your land. My people, not those people, not that nation, not that group, my people, the people of God, His bride. If we will repent... Change our minds. He, he will hear from heaven, and he will heal our land. Change our minds about what? About God and, and about his ways. You've you got to hear me today. You told me as I started. You want the truth. You can't live any way you want to live and expect God to bless you. You can't. And it would be irresponsible of me to tell you that you can, right? You may get to heaven, but heaven ain't going to be the same for you. There's tests. This was all about tests in the old time. It was all about tests. It's tests all through the Bible. The number of testing in the Bible, do you know what it is? It's 10. That's why Daniel said, test me for 10 days on, on this food. How many commandments in the Bible? 10. How many plagues? 10. How many disciples? i got you. <laughs> Twelve disciples. You know what the tithe is? Ten. It's a test. Listen, the tithe is not the end all of generosity. You don't grow to the place where you're at the tithe and say, I've matured, I've graduated, that's where I'm going to stay in generosity. No, 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 no. That's just the test to see if you can get in the school. That's it. That's all it is. Look, the the, the chart and the calendar I gave you earlier, all of that punishment, all of those figures that I was showing you how to calculate, you know what that was all about? It was about the people of God not honoring God with the Sabbath. That's what it was about, the Sabbath. For 490 years, they ignored the Sabbath. They didn't keep it holy like God said, keep it holy. One seventh of that number of years is 70. And God's like, you owe me 70 years. Why? It's a test. And church, we got to repent of all of this. Daniel is dealing with a real place called Babylon, but but Babylon represents so much more than that ancient kingdom. If you read the Bible, it shows up in Genesis, long before it existed as as a kingdom. And it's present all the way to the end of the book in Revelation. In fact, in the middle of the book in Isaiah, in Isaiah 47, God says to Babylon, I'm judging you because you say I am. And God's like, you're not I am. I am I am. Self-absorption is the language of Babylon. you remember what Jesus said when he said you can't serve both God and money? Anybody remember that? It's not actually what he said. What what Jesus said is you can't serve both God and mammon. That's the word. We translate the word mammon from time to time as, as money because it can mean riches, but it's much deeper than that. Mammon was an Aramaic word, which means riches, and it comes from the Syrian God of riches. Jesus wasn't referring to riches. He was referring to a false God that they knew. Syrians had a false god named Mammon, and it was the god of riches. And Mammon, you know where it has its roots? It has its roots in Babylonian history. And do you know what it means? It means sown in confusion. Confusion. Babylon comes from the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a system where they believed they didn't need God anymore, and they could work their way up to God Almighty. Does that sound familiar today? Listen, that's where God scattered them for trying to make a name for themselves. That was the punishment. Hello, social media. They believe their own work could get them up to heaven. And when the spirit of mammon influences us, we believe we don't need God. If we have influence or we have money, we we don't need God. The the, the spirit of mammon sets itself up in contrast to the spirit of God. It's an angry spirit. It's an arrogant spirit. It is a prideful spirit. and, And it tries to replace God in our lives. And all through our lives, mammon is trying to get us to bow down to mammon to serve mammon, to worship mammon, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The only one, the only God who can provide you all that you need is me. And this is not one of those sermons where you say, get them, pastor. This is one of those sermons where you say, ouch. Because we have all, at one point or another, thought that way. All of us. My people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. Seek my face. Turn from your wicked ways. I promise I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins, and I will restore your land. We have the prescription, church. I want to ask you to stand across all of our sanctuaries today. And bow your heads. I'm going to ask the campus pastors to come at this time. The reason I want you to stand as you bow your heads is because I actually don't think that staying where you're at is actually appropriate prescription for this moment. And I want you to give people room to move out of into the aisles. At every campus, I want to open up the front of the room as an altar for us to get on our face before God and pray prayers of repentance and allow God to change our mind. Do you know repentance is a gift? That's what the Bible says. It's a gift that we are to receive it. He wants to give it. I promise you he wants to give it. And the moment you and I repent, there's a freedom that comes with it. There is a joy that comes with it. There is a lightness that comes with it. It is unbelievable how you end up walking into this heavy moment you have been dreading, you have been resisting, you have been walking away from, you have been running away from, you have been putting walls up between you and that moment. But what happens every time we go to that moment, we walk away light. We walk away with freedom. We walk away with joy. It's amazing. And every time we get in this moment where we're like, I don't want to go there, God's like, you don't remember? What I did for you, this is a process that you walk in as my child. You're never going to get it all right all of the time, but walk and receive the gift of repentance. Change your mind back to me and my ways and my thinking and what I've said and what I've written. And so at every campus, I want to turn the front of the room into an altar for you to come and get on your knees and for you to pray and for you to talk to God. If for some reason you don't want to come, just kneel at the chair that you're at, but leave room for people to get out of the aisles. Come on, let's pray. Let's pray. Come on. Could I just pray over you? Would you just receive this? In fact, repeat it after me in your own words, under your own breath, to to your heavenly Father. Would you just say, Lord Jesus, today I I receive your forgiveness. As your child, I receive your forgiveness and I repent. I I choose to turn back to you. In fact, I don't just turn back to you. I want to turn back and run to you and to pursue you and your ways. Father, today I dedicate and I consecrate my life, my life, my desires, and my pursuits to the rule of Jesus Christ to be his and his alone. Father, I thank you today that your atoning blood covers my sin. Not only covers my sin, it cleanses me. May your holiness possess me totally and completely. And Lord Jesus, I place the fear of my presence and I trace the, the fear of, of our future that resides in my heart today into your loving arms. Lord Jesus, I'll receive it if you'll give it today, the gift of repentance. I, I, I'll receive it today if you'll give it the gift of repentance for our nation. Would you come back to this land? Would you heal this land? Would you bring real biblical freedom to this land? God, we declare today boldly that Jesus is the King, the King, the one and only King. Father, you are our creator and you are the sustainer of all things. So we bow our heads to you. We bow our hearts to you. We bow our knees before you. And we choose to stand in this time filled by your Holy Spirit. Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit of God? Would you give us biblical boldness, biblical authority, biblical pre- Father, would you take it in us and through us into the streets, into our homes, and into our land? Father, we, 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 we believe that the White House will continue to fail as long as the church house fails. You said my people. We're your people, and we're your bride, and we are taking you at your word today. We are repenting. We are humbling ourselves. We are turning from our wicked ways. And we are bowing before you today. And we ask that you would honor your word in this place and across this land. We will receive it and we will believe it in the strong and the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus.